Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Missouri Governor Mike Parson is our next guest. He's been governor since last June after former Governor Eric Greitens resigned amid scandal. Governor Parson is looking ahead to the legislative session that starts in January, and he's also reflecting on his brief time in office to date. So far, efforts to enhance workforce development have been his administration's centerpiece. That includes a scholarship program for adults to go to community colleges and a special fund to entice businesses to the state. St. Louis Public Radio reporter Jason Rosenbaum sat down with the governor and asked why his plans for the economy were a good deal for Missouri. Number one, before, I guess you go back to when we found out like states like Georgia, like Kentucky, like Tennessee, like Indiana, you were seeing that they were being very successful in, in programs in their states, and they're similar to our state in a lot of ways, and we're saying, okay, why are we not taking the best performances out of those states, putting a package together with just all the things that work and doing away with all the things that don't work? I knew that if you did the workforce development piece, no matter what you did there, if you didn't do the infrastructure piece, you couldn't get the workforce done. I mean, it's very difficult to separate those two because if you're gonna have a good workforce, you gotta have a good infrastructure. You gotta have good highways, you gotta have good airports, you gotta have good river ports, you gotta have rail, and you gotta have broadband. So I think when you put that combination together, that's why they were so critical to get both of those done. And again, I think the reason we were successful there, I didn't go in there with a, a total agenda, it's my way or it's the highway for the legislators. And it wasn't a Democrat or Republican issue. It was simply, hey, these things are good for the people of this state, and, and it's going to help our state to move forward. And now that we've been able to do that, we can now see the results of that, and thing, good things are happening. What would you say to some on the right flank of the political spectrum that felt that the economic development, workforce development plan was corporate welfare and kind of antithetical to Republican values? Yeah, you know what? I, I don't agree with them on that, to, to be right honest about it, even when they make that argument. It's an easy argument to make. But the bottom line is, what is the end result of the money you're investing in there? And, and, you know, for me, it's always about a business plan. If you're going to put X number of dollars in a industry or in a business or those incentives, what do you get back in return? And if I'm a business guy, you're going to spend so much money to make money. And I think when you really look at it, you have to have that kind of attitude of why you're doing this. So when you talk about General Motors, let's just say we, we brought that up. You do a billion dollars worth. What do we get out of that? And what is, what is the money we got to put skin in the game to be able to get that? And what does that mean? What does that mean for jobs? What does that mean for economy? What does that mean for people buying groceries, buying houses, buying cars? All of that has to be part of that uh, equation. And frankly, I mean, there's times that I think it's just the way it is nowadays, but if you're going to be competitive for those states, especially in the Midwest, you're going to have to compete. Staying on the workforce development infrastructure and going toward the infrastructure, one of the other things that passed during the 2019 session that I think was a major landmark was the bonding plan. It was one of the first times in recent memory that general revenue dollars have gone towards transportation. But I think that even people that were happy to see it don't feel like it's a permanent solution. And as you know, because you were a proponent of the gas tax uh, plan in 2018, it's really challenging to convince voters to find another source of revenue. So beyond talking about the impact of that particular package, which I, I want to give you a chance to talk about, what would you want to see as a more permanent solution for transportation funding? Yeah, the reality of it is we're going to have to have a revenue funding system in place to be able to meet the demands of infrastructure in the state. You know, uh, whether we like it or whether we don't, it's the sixth largest in the United States. That's what the people of Missouri decided they wanted over the years. But in order to keep that up, and, and we know that we've definitely need really additional funding than that for over two decades now, over 20 years. 
So the reality of it is when the people in Missouri decide that they want to do something, uh, they want to do more or they want to pay for that, or we find another a revenue stream. And I don't know what those revenue streams are out there. You've got Wayfair out there. You've got other ways that you might be able to utilize for funding streams. And I'm not saying that's the plan, but I'm saying the problem doesn't go away simply because we did a bonding of bridges across the state of Missouri. It really helped, but it's not going to cure the problem for the state of Missouri. So we got to find other solutions for that. Because in 2014, voters rejected a sales tax hike. As I mentioned before, 2018, uh, gas tax hike was rejected. And I, I know that tolls get brought up, but I feel like if that was placed before the voters, it would probably face these similar obstacles those two did. But I know that a lot of lawmakers are talking about like putting a doohickey in your car, going across a scanner, and going... To, in a, in a dedicated lane. Is that something that you would be interested in pursuing, or is that just not going to be politically feasible based off the, the past? You, you know, I, I think you got to look at just what you're saying. you got to look at the, the, the pulse of the Missouri people. And frankly, it doesn't matter what's the transportation. As, as in general, Missourians are very hesitant to pass any tax increases in this state. Always has been. It's kind of that way. It's always a very close issue if you do. So I think, one, you got to respect the will of the voters. And what the voters are basically telling you, like last time, you said, look, Governor, you and the legislators need to find out some solutions. And so you're going to have to do that, which means thinking outside the box. So all of the things you're talking about now, those are things I think you have to put on the table sometimes and, and see what comes out of that to figure out, is there a solution in that? Or do we just simply got to go back at some point and figure figure out what we're going to do with the voters? But the voters are going to decide that one way or the other someday. I, I know that maybe you've been following the fact that House Speaker Elijah Har has spent part of the session talking about Hyperloop technology, which would take people from St. Louis to Kansas City at just completely ludicrous speeds. It, it, it sounds like a great idea because I would love to go to Columbia, Missouri in 10 minutes, but I think a lot of people are like, why are we paying any attention to this prospective technology when there are so many existing transportation needs? Since this may come up during the legislative session about incentives or trying to get ARFP for some of the experimental technology, I'd like to hear your take on whether there should be any focus on this type of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, when you say uh, ludicrous speed, does that mean slow or fast uh, on that when you're saying that? Fast. Okay. I mean, right. That was I wanna... a Spaceballs reference. I know that uh, <laughs> Senator Blunt loves Spaceballs. I'm not sure if you like it, Governor, but I, I, I felt like I had to do a very subtle uh, uh, I, pop culture reference in there. I see. Look, uh, there's a lot of people out there going to be pushing the Hyperloop. I think it's new. It's exciting. Uh, when you talk about the future, I, I think all those things are worthy of a discussion. But for me right now, as the governor of the state of Missouri, i got to take care of the priorities of the state right now. And that means trying to fix our interstates, our highway systems, our rail system, our ports, the things that are facing me now. But I think all of those things, uh, how you get ahead uh, in the future is something we should have a, sure, have a discussion about. And I think you will. I think you'll see your legislators pick that up this year. Uh, before we delve into more perspective issues, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about HB 126, the abortion legislation. Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of political ramifications, but I want to ask you very simply, what was the public policy desire that you and the legislators wanted to achieve by passing and signing that bill? Which, for our listeners, banned abor most abortions after eight weeks of pregnancy. And also our listeners should know it's under litigation right now. We don't know what parts of the bill are going to be in place. But I'd like to ask you, what were you trying to accomplish with that bill? Yeah, I, I think when that became to my desk, that was all during that year of transition when I became governor and that was placed on my desk. I think the point of it is I'm not sure what you're trying to prove in any way. 
for the simple fact that I think the people of this state, the ones that are pro-life are going to be pro-life and the ones that are pro-choice. I think we see that pretty consistently in our state. There's about 5% difference in, in, in the pro-life versus the pro-choice uh, of the people in this state when you look at it. Of all the political things that have been said, all the situation we went through Planned Parenthood, which I think a lot of that was politics, was political. The reality of it is it doesn't really change the numbers. People that believe in pro-life, they're pro-life. People that believe in pro-choice, they believe in pro-choice. At the end of the day, this whole issue will be decided in the courts, no, no matter what we do here. And I think it'll be, uh, I think it'll be decided today at the Supreme Court on the, on the national level. But the whole point of it is, I think, is just what you believe, uh, you know, where you are. And it's a very emotional issue. It's a controversial issue. But the reality of it, I think we're right where we were 20, 30 years ago. I, I think people that believe that believe it, and the people that don't, don't. Planned Parenthood recently opened a, a clinic in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And my question for you, and the reason I bring that up, is if this bill is upheld and people can just go 13 miles across the border, did you really accomplish anything by restricting abortion so much? Or are you just sending people to other states? Yeah. Well, well. first of all, for the state of Missouri, that's what the legislators, that's what the will of the legislators were. That was the majority of the people that they represent uh, sent them up there to do. So that's why they voted for that. I think, I think it's one thing you really got to, I think everybody's tried to bring the Planned Parenthood into the pro-choice, the pro-life issue. Planned Parenthood is, is basically a health clinic doing women's services. That's the way we view the Planned Parenthood facility. It's not a thing of whether they are or should be doing abortions or whether they shouldn't do abortions. It's perfectly legal for them to do that in the state of Missouri. And I will go back to the initial beginning of where this all went. I know everybody's put these different spins on it and said a lot of things that, frankly, shouldn't have been said. Some of the media outlets, I think, was very unbecoming um, the truth. But, but, but the whole point I want to make of that, they have every right to do business in this state, whether I like it or whether I don't. But as the governor, it's my constitutional duty to make sure they have those rights. And the one thing they got to do, but they got to maintain, just like every other clinic in the state of Missouri, they got to follow the rules. They don't get an exception because it's a political issue. I think that you're right that, you know, there are a lot of people in the state that are opposed to abortion rights who are probably very happy that you signed that bill. But obviously, there are a lot of people that support abortion rights who are upset and a lot of, you know, abortion rights supporter politicians who are upset, not only because of the bill, but also because of how the Planned Parenthood situation in St. Louis has been held. In fact, Lacey Clay recently stated, here we have a state agency that tracks the menstrual periods of women. What have we devolved to as a state? It's embarrassing. Beyond just reacting to Lacey Clay, I do want you to to answer the question of whether this bill or just the posture administration has taken toward Planned Parenthood has hurt the image of the state. Because this is getting national attention. I'm sure you're aware of that. Well, I, I think the national attention, again, comes from a lot of the misleading things. And what uh, Congressman said there, unfortunately, was, again, pretty well propaganda, in my opinion, from one particular reporter uh, from the Kansas City Star that honestly just, I think, just outright made false statements about what happened there. There has been nobody tracking minister, the, the, the cycles of women uh, in the state of Missouri. There is no spreadsheet that does that. The only thing that I would tell you, this has been going on since 1981. The information that was on that sheet of paper that they're all referring to was the same thing that's been used since 1981. The same thing. Planned Parenthood is the one that provided that information to the Department of Health, along with many other items that are on that list. And it's part of the process when you're doing the abortion 
when, when women go through that, all of that. There has never, ever been a sheet out there that says that. And unfortunately, that was reported and it was misleading. And like you said, it did catch national attention. But, you know, th- th- there's one thing to me as, as, as governor of the state of Missouri, as I'm learning as I go, sometimes people are biased for whatever position it is. And, th- and they do things in that biased fashion. And we get that. But what you don't do, what we shouldn't do, is ever lie. We should never misread to the general public. If, if we're going to be in the business, at least give them the idea of what really is the truth and so that. So it's disappointing that that ha- happened in our state, and it's disappointing it was on the national news. But again, I'm going to go back to what I said in the beginning. If Planned Parenthood wants to operate in the state of Missouri, it's pretty easy. Just abide by the laws and the regulation of the state, and they can open their doors. That's Missouri Governor Mike Parson talking with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Jason Rosenbaum. As to the governor's comments on Planned Parenthood, he said the state does not maintain a spreadsheet that tracks women's menstrual cycles. That's at least partially untrue. The state obtained data from two different sources as part of an investigation looking into whether there had been irregularities in the reporting of failed surgical abortions. The spreadsheet was found as part of discovery for a hearing on Planned Parenthood's medical license. And Health Director Dr. Dr. Randall Williams testified under oath that it exists. The state denies, quote unquote, tracking menstrual cycles. Parson also said that Planned Parenthood has been providing some of the data in question for a number of years. That is true as part of a regulatory requirement. And now back to more of reporter Jason Rosenbaum's interview with Missouri Governor Mike Parson. Last year when we talked, you talked about an interest in restructuring Medicaid pretty substantially. I want to know if that's going to be something you're going to pursue in 2020, along with uh, Director Richardson. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. We, we've really took some huge steps in trying to reform the Medicaid uh, that we're currently in the state of Missouri. I think it's important to realize that out of the 6 million people in the state of Missouri, 1 million prior to us taking over was on the Medicaid rolls. So that's one in every six people out here that's on that. You know, and I think if you go back and look at the history of how many people has been added on to the rolls just in the last two or three years prior to me becoming governor, how that expansion has went up there drastically. The bottom line is the people that are on the, on the rolls have never been verified for over a decade. So for over 10 years, we have not just went out there and asked somebody, are you still qualified to be on the rolls? Do you need to be on there? Because the one thing I want to make really, I, I guess, uh, a point If there's children out there that need to be on the system, we want them on the system. If there's seniors out there, we want them on the system. But everybody that's on there that shouldn't be on there, you're taking away from the people that really need it. And what we're trying to do is clean that up. And until we get that fixed, until we get it cleaned up, uh, it's going to be difficult to move forward. But I'm just telling you, um, for what it's worth, as governor of the state of Missouri, the people that need to be on that system, I'm going to make sure I'll do everything I can to get them on the system. And if somebody got caught in some of the, the, the bureaucracy side of us switching, we're going to be there. There's plenty of safety nets there. We're going to pick them up. Because you're referring to what ha- something that happened in the interim where there were reports about a lot of children not be- having access to Medicaid anymore. And that was going to be my next question. Did you want to make any changes to how people apply and reapply to Medicaid? Because there's been a lot of explanations about why that's happened and some disagreement. But it seems like that process could use a lot of improvement to not only make sure that people are getting it, getting Medicaid, but also making sure that people that don't qualify don't qualify. Yeah. You know, you know, I think, Jason, one of the challenges of being governor, every day we're trying to figure out ways to make it where the everyday person, the common person out here can get through the bureaucracy and where you're not filling out 
five and six pages of nothing but bureaucracy? And how do we make it simpler for people to get on and to get off and to make sure they're qualified? And there's ways to do that. I think we every day are working hard to try to do that. But I think at the end of the day, we got to do a better job of making sure people can get through the system than the way it is now. And I believe we're making those changes. I'm sure that you are aware that there is a ballot item to expand Medicaid up to the through the auspices of the Affordable Care Act. There are some pretty powerful interest groups that are supporting it, including the Hospital Association, openly. And there's probably some other people that would benefit, or other interests that would benefit, that are also going to be financially supporting it. With that in mind, and I understand that it's hard to predict how ballot measures are going to go. We mm-hmm. just talked about the gas. Right. Failing. right. But would it make sense for the legislature to be proactive and, and also you also work with the legislature to pass some sort of Medicaid expansion the way that the legislature would want to do it rather than be at the mercy of an interest group led ballot initiative? Yeah, I, th- I think that's going to be an issue, Jason, that the, that the legislature is going to have to pick up and see if they want to do something like that. Uh, I think for me, I got to let them do their job. Uh, in the state and see what they come up with. I think the ballot initiative, you're always kind of concerned about ballot initiative to know what that language is and what all it means, what it costs. I know one thing, people really need to know the facts when they go to vote, whatever the issue might be, what that means when you expand it. And, and what do you have to give up to expand it? Whether that's education, whether that's transportation, whether that's other things in government. Not to say, I don't know whether we can absorb that or not, but I know one thing, the Medicaid it is today of a $30 billion budget, it's $11 billion of it. So when you talk expanding that, that has a huge impact on the rest of the state government. Is it possible, we, you know, last year I think we talked about the Wayfair decision mm-hmm. or maybe taxing managed care organizations, but maybe taxing vaping products. It does seem like there are ways to pay for it. It's just a matter of whether the legislature would have the will to do it, and oftentimes they don't. Is that kind of what you're talking about as far as uh, how to actually pay for Medicaid expansion? Yeah, I, I think the big question is, yeah, how do you pay for it if you're going to expand it? How do you do that? And as soon as you say those things like there, well, what are you going to do for education? What are you going to do for infrastructure? What are, are you going to take away from those things, even with new revenue, uh, where it gets at? And that's always gets to be very controversial when you're trying to do that. You know, I, I think we're just going to have to wait and see what the ballot says, what the people do. As you said, there's a lot of special interest group out there that's going to push this that, frankly, uh, a lot of them's going to benefit from it, you know, and that's just a reality of it. So we just got to figure out at the but, – but I think the priority should be on all of us, whether – is to make sure if we are going to do anything, are we really – taking care of the people that really need it. Are we really going to the people that need it and just not expand it and put a lot of people on there that don't belong? You were recently in St. Louis to roll out a plan aimed at curbing St. Louis violence. I wanted to ask, how is that proposal working so far? Because I know that the next questions are going to be asked, like, what do we do next? But obviously there has been something that's been done. I wanted you to provide an update on that if there is one. You know, I, I think one of the things early on, we're still trying to figure out just what that result's going to be. But I think the most important thing about what we did in the St. Louis region here, and it all started again when I first became governor, but we've reached out to all the governors in, in the state, when you, or the, the four main ones, I guess, in Columbia, uh, Springfield, Kansas City, and St. Louis. We've established a working relationship with all of those governors. We all know violent crime uh, is something we've got to deal with in the state of Missouri. They know that. I know that. i got to be real careful when I'm the governor of the state of Missouri somewhat to stay in my lanes as governor. Uh, I've got these mayors out here that they're the ones that are in charge of these cities, not me, you know, and I'm here as a resource for them to try to figure out how to give them the tools I can. But on the other hand, I can't be the permanent answer 
to, to the problems of the cities. That's why I think it was important to be engaged with the mayors and trying to figure out what solutions we've done. I think by us helping in a lot of different areas what we've done, I, I hope that's going to be very successful. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't know that the state's always going to be able to be there uh, to do that, but we want to be to help right now. I know that Speaker Hauer has talked about rolling out a legislative package early in the session to curb violent crime. And I know that even if they roll it out earlier in the session, it's going to be a lengthy process. Sure. But is there any particular more permanent policy you would want the legislature to pass, maybe to empower cities to deal with, with violent crime a little bit more than what they can do now? Yeah, I, I think, again, I think that's why we're meeting, we're having those discussions. But I think, I think you can take a lot of look at a lot of issues. One, juveniles. Uh, if juveniles are, frankly, handling weapons and they've got adults actually giving it to them uh, and letting juveniles handle a weapon so the adult don't get in trouble, we need to take a look and see what we can do on that on the statutes as far as the laws goes. I think ex-felons, you know, if you're out there and you're, you're carrying guns, you're committing, continue to commit crimes, I think we've got to take a look at that, especially when it comes to violent crimes in, in the state of Missouri. I think the mental health issue we've got to take a look at. I think the safety of witnesses we got to take a look at. Those are all doable things that I think we could do uh, by working with one another. But I, I've stressed this many times, the, the problems to the violent crime that we have in the state of Missouri, it's not going to be fixed quickly. I mean, there is no magic potion for that that we're going to be able to fix this. This has been decades going on. And, and frankly, government's played a role in that. And I'm not sure it was for the best, the way we've done things over the years. But I think the only way we're going to fix it is if we'll all work together. And that means the cities, the counties, the state, and the federal government. I know that there's been a lot of discussion about, like, regulating guns about this. And I know you're a former sheriff, so I think you're probably intimately aware of how, like, background checks work. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask, you know, there has been one of the ideas floated is just making background checks more expansive, whether it be through, like, private sales or gun shows. And I understand that there's opposition to that because nobody wants to be caught up in a background check unfairly. But if the background check takes a couple of minutes and you aren't a felon and you don't have a mental health issue, I'm just struggling to figure out how that's like an affront to Second Amendment rights because felons don't have the right to own a gun. And if you are a felon, as you just mentioned, you shouldn't own a gun. So with that as a long verbose windup, what do you think about the idea of expanding background checks when you buy a gun? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I think where you get into, you get into the argument of the Second Amendment. That's what we always hear on this deal. Uh, you know, on the Second Amendment rights. The one thing you always want to protect is the law-abiding citizen. Why should he have to do anything if he's a law-abiding citizen, what you're saying? We know we want to do that because of the criminal side of it is what's really making that go. I don't know what's going to happen on that. I know the legislators have got some special committees. We're just going to see how that works out. But I, I think it's going to be a difficult— when you start talking about guns in this state, the division that we got in this state— I think it's going to be difficult. Do I think you can do some other things around that? I do, but I think just to do with some sort of gun control will be difficult. Well, last year we talked a lot about early childhood education and expanding the state's role. And yeah. I really do think this goes hand in hand with this, this gun violence issue because there's a feeling that if you bring more economic opportunity and more early childhood education at an early age, you can prevent somebody from turning to a life of crime pretty quickly. We talked a little bit briefly about like the Wayfair sales tax decision 
are finding some funding stream for that. Is, is that going to be a component of this discussion going forward? And, and what would you like to see specifically the, the state to do on that issue? It has to be a part of the discussion because it is the long-term solution. And you you're know. talking about early childhood education. Early childhood development yeah. is what I'm talking yeah. about. That is, that is definitely the long-term solution. Look, you're going to have to figure out some way that we get these kids in these areas. We're going to have to get them some basic skills that do some fundamental education. And then we're going to have to figure out how you get them in the workforce, how do you get them the jobs and everything. If you really want to turn this around, that's where it's going to happen. And I, I think that's one of the things we've really been trying to focus on, trying to figure out how we're going to get those services there, how we're going to do that, and again, how we're going to pay for it. But I'm going to tell you, in the long term, it's the cheapest probably thing you can do uh, to work with these kids than it is we're doing what we're dealing with today. Because what we're dealing with today with violent crime is so expensive. And I think the other thing that, that goes with that, and I think, like you said, jobs is going to make a difference. When we look at the unemployment rate in the state of Missouri at record lows at 3.1, if you look at the African-American unemployment rate that was a little over 10% in 2015, and now it's at 5.9, those are the kind of things that are people going back to work. That's also opportunity for us to go back in there and try to get more people to work. That opportunity is there. We just got to do a better job of getting the resources to them to give them the opportunity to go to work. That's Missouri Governor Mike Parson talking with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Jason Rosenbaum. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske.